I don't know if Richard Smith is the UK's pension dashboards expert, but he's certainly a strong contender. This was a super interesting and informative discussion about the development of dashboards here in the UK, what we can learn from European dashboard development, where they're quite a long way ahead of us in some countries, and he's visited them. What's going to happen next and what the challenges are? I hope you enjoy listening. So you were just talking about your website. I think it's fantastic. And I was struck looking at it. Like you said, how far back this goes? We've been in this a long time already. So in the same green paper that launched the Pensions Commission in December 2002, also that's that's the, the Labour government, the second Blair mm-hmm. government, that also proposed a, a something called an online retirement planner. Government got some way with building that. It, it contracted the gig to build it to Accenture, and I was at PricewaterhouseCoopers PwC at the time, and we won a subcontract to build the calculation engine. So, so I, I've sort of been on this for for twenty years. That particular labour program was scrapped in two thousand and six because state pension was changing and it was going to be too complicated. So then it went quiet for a while, and then it it was resurrected by the FCA just after or around when the French and Freedom say, yeah. yeah, we really do need to um, help consumers see what they've got so they can take, you know, holistic decisions. The industry stepped up to it with a degree of willingness, it felt at the time. And if you fast forward again, another couple of years around what, 2016, 2017, the industry put together a working group, I think led largely by the API at that point. But my recollection is that there were a number of willing participants in that work. Yes, that's absolutely right. HM Treasury was sponsoring government department then, and ABI stepped forward with some about 18 contributing organisations who, who, who paid some money to get a prototype up and running. And it was very exciting at Easter 2017. And this is all still on the, the ABI's website. A, a prototype was put together. And I think that's the key thing to, to point out, Tom, is that the technology isn't that groundbreaking. You know, it was it was doable and deliverable in concept, quite rapidly over the the autumn and winter of 2016-2017. I think what makes this hard, and and this is echoed by the the trip I've just done to continental Europe, is actually garnering all of industry to connect and to make it work universally. Well, yes, and that, that does seem to have been a bit more of a challenge, but we'll come back to that in a second. Before we got there, I just want to sort of finish off the what got us to where we are now. So we had the Pension Schemes Act in 2021. And so yes. now this is this is properly real and this is actually happening. And then we had all the regulations yes. through... Sorry, go on. I was going to say, the key thing that that prototype project said, there was some user testing based on the prototype and it said, this is industry back to government, George Osborne at the time, saying, if you want dashboards to be successful, you're going to have to mandate in law um, the supply of the data. So you're going to have to tell pension schemes and providers to make their data digitally searchable. So so DWP did a feasibility study on that question in 2018 and in 2019 committed to say, yes, we want to do that and we want to, to make the law. So you're absolutely right, Tom. So we had the Pension Schemes Bill 2020 that was then reintroduced and became the Pension Schemes Act 2021 that makes the, the legislative requirement on schemes and providers to make their, their pensions data. But then, of course, the detail is in the regs, the Pensions Dashboards Regulations 2022 that were just made 
just about a year ago before Christmas in 2022. The caveat on that, Tom, the one, sorry, to change is that the dates by when schemes had to make their data digitally available were originally in those regs, but this summer, 2023, those dates were taken out of the legislation. And right now, the hot news, right now this week in November, government uh, DWP has started an informal engagement on what those new dates for compliance are going to be. And we'll probably hear about those as we get into 2024. Well, and so I wanted to pick up on that because it was striking how we had the regs at the end of 2022 saying, yep, all systems go for 2023. We're going to start uh, dashboard access from 2023. You know, you've been clearing your data. Everything's going to be fine. We're all systems go. And then suddenly in February, we had a pause and then in June, we had a, no, this isn't working, and we're actually going to go to 2026. I mean, what happened there? So it's a, a slight sort of obfuscation there in the, in the, in the dates, which is something the, the media sometimes do. The original comparable end date was October 25. So the original dates in the regs, which have now gone, as I mentioned, mm-hmm. they prescribed a staging window, as it was known, from August 23 through to October 25. So the final end date was already October 25. Okay, fair, right. Moved back by, by one calendar year to October 26. But what's what's currently not prescribed, but this is the thing that's being consulted on right now, is what should the staging window be right. leading up to that final end connection date of October 26. So I think we'll see a similar pattern to what was originally prescribed, which is the largest master trusts and FCA-regulated pension providers connecting, and, and, and probably reasoning quite soon, and some big DB schemes as well, and then the long tail of, of smaller schemes through to uh, that end date of 2026. So that's really key to understand is the end date for data. I don't know, maybe I can come to this. One thing that I find doesn't really get a lot of discussion, particularly in, in the media, is if I can suggest to your listeners, if I can think about an hourglass a shape. So when people talk about the dashboard, what's really coming forward is, is what I think of as an hourglass shape. So fat at the top, thin at the middle, fat at the bottom. Fat at the top is dashboards, and we'll maybe talk about mm. a bit about that in a moment. Then the middle bit is the Chris Curry bit, the Pensions Dashboards Programme, who are providing the central technology. And at the bottom, the fat bit again, is, is all the pension schemes and providers making their data available. Now, the question is, how broad do you need that bottom bit to be before you could launch dashboards? What, one argument is, well, that's got to be universal. Dashboards have got to show all of a consumer's pensions. But the testing we did with the, with the prototype in 2017 said, well, that's not actually true. Users' expectations can be managed to say, come on and have a look. Not all of your pensions are connected yet, but it could be quite useful for you if, say, 80 90% are connected. So we've got coverage of pension schemes incrementally happening through to 2026. But the vast majority of pension entitlements will be connected long before that. Uh, As you know, Tom, if you connect the biggest master trusts and the biggest FCA regulated pension providers and the biggest DB schemes, you've got 80, 90% of pension entitlements attached. Yeah, so it is, I mean, to use a slightly crude analogy, it's it's slightly sperm-shaped, isn't it? You've got a very fat body and you've got some very quick wins (laughs) at the front end and then a long tail, but it's very thin. And that long tail might have quite a lot of schemes, but there's very few members in them. That's correct. But this slight sort of sting in that ointment is some of the most forgotten about pensions might be some of the oldest pensions, say from early in Gen X's careers in the 1980s or even 1970s, and they might be in smaller schemes. 
I think we do need to still move towards universal coverage, but that doesn't mean you can't launch really quite successful dashboards before you've got to universal coverage. Okay, so that all sounds good. And I just want to jump back again briefly. So that whole reset that happened, and as you've explained, the delay is not a substantial delay as one might have supposed from some of the media coverage around it, but delay there was nevertheless. And yes. is that purely attributable to the pension scheme saying, look, sorry, we just we're just not ready for this? Or was it the technology providers? What 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 actually caused the delay? Why 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 the hold up? So come back to my hourglass. I find this quite helpful to always think about the, the, the flow. So at the front, there are dashboards. In the middle, there's the central identity service and central consent service. So that's saying you know, Richard is who he says he is, and he consents to a pension search being done, and then and then the central finder service. And then at the bottom, there's the pension schemes, as you say. So the alpha ecosystem, let's call that whole outglass the, the ecosystem. Yes. So uh, you may know I'm supporting uh, a fintech provider, Money Hub, on a two-day-a-week basis. That, so they are one of the alpha dashboard providers. They connected into the alpha central architecture, and then there were a number of alpha data providers who connected at the bottom. So there was an alpha ecosystem working in the summer of 2022, which is really good. But I think the reset from my perspective is about the hardest challenge in all of this. The technology isn't that groundbreaking. What is hard, I think, in doing this, and it's echoed by the continental trip I've done, is all of the industry collaborating to make it happen. So if you think about the middle part of the hourglass, they've got to ramp up at scale in a robust and secure way so that all pension schemes and providers can connect over the staging window. Mm -hmm. And I think that was the challenge that wasn't quite ready to start from August 2023. Okay, that's really helpful. And, you know, personally, I'd rather we go late and get it right than go early and uh, for the whole thing to blow up in our faces. So, you know, I'm actually pretty relaxed about the delay personally. Because yeah. because it's such an important project and it could be so, make such a difference in the long term that we don't want to tarnish it with a poor reputation from a from a shaky start. I think that's very wise, Tom. And I'm I, another thing I do. I, I've been the PLSA's pensions dashboards consultant, supporting Nigel People's policy team uh, on consultation responses for the last couple of years. And I think PLSA would probably have a similar view. Much better to do it right than quick. But one slight caveat, not a PLSA view, but a, but a Richard view is, but you'll never launch perfection. And and another big lesson from the continental trip I did was getting version one launched, albeit safely and securely, is really important because then you will get live usage experience and you will understand the things that need to be improved and iterated. There is a balance to be struck. Uh, Yeah, and I was doing some research work over the summer talking to quite a number of pension schemes and pension providers, and that came through loud and clear. Well, two things. One, Everybody is supportive of the idea of the dashboard, apart from my mate Dave, who's very skeptical about it. But (laughs) he's an outlier. That notion of let's make it iterative, let's get a minimum viable product up and running, keep it simple, get it up and running with a minimum acceptable level of coverage, as you say, not 100%, but a decent level. And And then we can improve it from there. And I think there's a lot of industry support for that approach. So look, you mentioned already your your European tour this summer, which I was really intrigued by. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you took in Belgium, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, and Holland. It was a great way to spend your summer. How long were you away for? Only only two weeks, uh, but I've given up flying in 2018 and given up driving in 21. So it was all by rail and, and ferry. But the trigger point, really, I mean, I'd wanted to visit them for years. I was quite deep in this topic, but the trigger point, my daughter came home one weekend and said, oh, dad, I've signed up to run a marathon in the Arctic Circle. Oh, 
Fantastic. So I thought, right, now I have an excuse. So I caught the sleeper train after the Stockholm meeting all the way up Sweden. And they run it at night. It's called the Midnight Sun this Marathon. Which is Tromso, um, right? That's right, yes, yeah. And uh, watched her run the marathon, then caught the sleeper train all the way back down Norway and, and, and then met the uh, Norwegian team. The inspiration, really, this isn't a new idea to, to learn lessons from other countries. So, for example, the, the pensions dashboards program at the Money and Pension Service Maps, you know, run by Chris Curry, they, they commissioned the Behavioural Insights team to do some rapid review of the existing evidence on this. And that includes a number of continental insights. But the, the new flavour from my perspective, having worked with Money Hub, which is, I say, the open banking fintech, and I'm not a, I'm not a user interface, UI, user experience, UX person. I'm just a pensions nerd. But I've learned from being around app developers that it's it's much more of a show me than a tell me thing. You have to see it. Do, do you know what I mean? So I thought, right, the best way to learn what the continental teams have done is to go and see and get, get a demo from them sitting next to them. Mm. And they can tell me why they've designed certain pages the way they have, what their users do and why, etc. So that was the motivation to get a bit more under the bonnet of the actual user experience of, of continental consumers actually using these dashboards. Okay. And so what did you learn? So there's an awful lot of stuff. And I was just thinking before we sort of preparing for this, Tom, what's the best way to do it? So one thing I have done, I've put all the insights onto my independent website. Blog, and I'll, I'll, link, I'll link to the website in the show. Fantastic. Dashboardideas.co.uk. And I've deliberately done that because I think, you know, all of us working on this collaboratively sort of can benefit from these insights. I drew out some themes. One top theme, just to be aware of for your listeners, you have to recognise country differences. There are differences in terms of the pension provision in each country and also cultural differences. So there's only so far you can go with analogies. But in terms of core consumer need, which you might articulate as, you know, am I going to be okay when I'm older? What what might I get as a regular income when I'm older? And will that be enough to live on? I think that's universal, whether you're a, a Dane or a Swede or a or a Brit. So in pulling out the core themes, I teased them on LinkedIn, actually. And this was a way to work out what's most interesting to folk. I looked at the number of views. So they've had about 15,000 views altogether. But the four or five, I'll just quickly go through them, that had sort of more, more than 1,500 views are one people really like dashboards. So in every country I visited, just shy of 40% of working age adults, so that's four in 10 of working age adults, use their country's dashboards at least once a year. And I think that's a really important statistic. That's across all people, say from you know 20 to mid 60s, but it increases with age. So the, the even higher number is people in their 50s use dashboards, about, sorry, about 60%, so about six in 10 of people in their 50s use dashboards. And, and the reason for that, and there's an interesting stat from Netherlands on this, is that people want to see their total income. Increasingly, people aren't looking at scheme statements. Why? Because they only show one of their pensions, and nearly everybody has got several. So dashboards really are the future of pension communications in a modern labour workforce where we churn jobs through our through our lifetime. Obviously, if we only have one job like my dad did, then perhaps you don't need a dashboard, although you'd still see state pension together with your single pension on a, on a dashboard. So one, people really like dashboards. Two, they really like commercial dashboards. In Norway, they set up a central service in 2008 to find your pensions, the same as the thin bit of my hourglass analogy. Then once that was bedded in, in 2015, they opened that same find service up to commercial apps through application programming interfaces, APIs. 
to things like banking apps and pension apps, those are used to find people's pension data 30 times more than the original central and government service. If and that makes so, absolute that, sense to me, because this is what people do yeah. for a living. They design apps that are usable and connect with people's lives. So, you know, it would be perverse not to harness that. And I think the other thing, Tom, is people want to see their pension history, that you know, the totality of their retirement, on an app they already use and trust and are familiar with, like their banking app, for example. I mean, the example I use is, you know, Scottish Widows Rob Cochran stood up at a conference in January this year saying will banks in the UK host dashboards? He said, well, Lloyds Bank for sure will. You know, be, yeah. And I'm a Lloyds Bank customer, have been for 40 years. And you know, if I can see all my, all my pensions on my Lloyds Banking app, personally, I think that's, that's where I would go. And, I think you know, would be I great. I think a Lloyds Bank customer as well. It's a useful app. I like it. It's, yes. you know, it's a really yeah. handy way to run my personal banking. So if they started throwing my pension in there as well, that would make me happy. Third thing, segmentation of users, really, really key. Everyone is not the same. The big majority of users, turns out, Aren't that don't want to spend that long thinking about pensions, but they do want to know a bit. And the core single data point that most users, and I'm talking sort of 80, 90%, want to look at, not every day, but on a sort of once, twice, three times a year basis, is what I call TMI, total monthly income. Show me in aggregate what I might get as a monthly income when I retire. Now, I understand that's a projection. I totally understand that that isn't what I'm actually going to get, but show me the direction of travel. And therefore, on the home landing page of all the dashboards I saw, that is the key thing that that is led with, because that's what most people want. Now, other people want to dig deeper. Other people want to say, well, suppose I retired earlier. You know, is there a modelling facility? And what might the impact on that income be if I retired earlier or maybe contributed more? But they are in the minority. At Money Hub, we've been doing some user testing of our prototype dashboard, partly because you have to, because dashboards are going to be FCA regulated and they have to be consumer duty compliant. You have to have the evidence that you've tested it in front of a range of consumers with a range of different vulnerabilities. And... Affectionately, we we call the more interested user Bob. Let's just call him Bob. He's typically older and typically white and male and more affluent. And he sort of understands more about pensions, or he thinks he does anyway. And in all the countries I visited, unprompted, they all sort of said, Richard, you've got to be aware you've got different sorts of users. So they all offered me the concept of Bob. And in sort of uh, jokingly, I, sort of, I, was, I was asking them, how prevalent is Bob? And they said, in every country, less than 10% of users. Now, that's not less than 10% of assets. Obviously, Bob has got the biggest pensions. Of course he has, because he knows about pensions. He's been contributing all his, all his life. So there's a, there's a tension here between who are dashboards for? Are they for the 80 90% who we know from DWP research, for example, earlier this year, most people are detached, complacent, and afraid when it comes to their retirement? So is it for that 80, 90% who've got low levels of awareness and confidence? Do we want to get slightly build their confidence and gradually over time increase their awareness about what they might get? Or do we want lots of bells and whistles tools for, let's call him Bob, you know, for the user base who is is perhaps more sophisticated? I think in truth, we want to do both. (laughs) And and we want to make the 80% more Bob-like over time. And and I think you do that by what I call snippetization of the intel, right, So of the information. So you don't send pages and pages of information. You do very, very personalized snippets of information. For example, do you really need to explain DB pensions to someone who you can see from the data returned hasn't got any DB pensions? 
So you make very, very contextual snippet items. And this has been really exciting to see Tom doing this user testing of the prototype dashboard at Money Hub is how much people can learn in half an hour. You know, I think consumers are fed up of being afraid and, and unaware. But if they see their own data and they see snippets of information, they can grow quite quickly. And I was just reading a report yesterday about how, how, you know, what is value for money in pensions. And it was some research done several years ago, actually 2017, saying in a workshop, as people understood more about pensions, they understood more about what good value is. So we need to gradually, I think, bring people along that journey. It won't be quick and we need to do it in a personal way and in very in very snippet-based way. Yeah, at a pace they're comfortable with, yeah. Final two things. What I was really excited, sitting next to Anders Lundström in Stockholm, I said, Anders, you've got a great dashboard, been going 20 years, minpension.se. What do people want next? And he said, Richard, they want ESG information on their pensions. And I was really excited to hear that Swedes are asking for, right, okay, you're showing me my pensions, tell me something now about the good or bad of these pensions in terms of what they're doing, for example, to the planet. You know, and I think this is what we do. I think in the UK, we get version one launched, version one dashboards launched, and then we link up with Richard Curtis and Make My Money Matter, and and we find a way to get some sort of ranking. And we've even seen this in the Money Hub testing. When you show people their state pension and say they're three DC pensions, they then start to instinctively say, well, which one's best? Then the question is, well, what do you mean by best? Is it something to do with, you know, the underlying investments or the performance or whatever? So I think there will be appetite. It's instinctive. When you show people a list of what they've got, they're going to want some sort of ranking. Final thing is this is what we've already said, which is launch a minimum viable product. Get a version one launched and crucially test it with real consumers looking at their real data. Anders said to me that if you show people synthetic data, like a sort of mocked up prototype, they have an intellectual reaction to it. But when you show them their personal history of pensions and they really see what they might get as a retirement income, it's an emotional reaction. So getting real dashboards in front of real consumers as soon as possible. And I think that's really what 2024 in our in, in UK is all about. It's so key. So that's, that's fantastic. Thank you for all of that. So a couple of questions coming back on that. One is around what is my income going to be? Because the dashboards yeah. will know what your pot size is, but what your income going to be is going to be will be interpretive. And so you need a degree of standardization on the projections and you need a degree of standardizations on the income assumptions. They are just assumptions. They're going to be wrong. And you want consistency across the different providers because you don't want to skew the landscape. So if one provider's pot looks like it's going to deliver a spectacularly higher income than another's, so, well, that might prompt people to transfer into that. But that might just be down to the assumptions used. So so you get into some fairly murky waters around that. So I'm interested in your thoughts around how you manage that. And then the other thing I'd, I'd be interested in is the functionality. So once you start going beyond here is the information and you yeah. start saying, well, can I consolidate? Can I do anything with that information? Do I build any interactivity into it? So, So what are your thoughts around those two points? So you may be aware, I was very lucky, very privileged to do a year's contract on the Pensions Dashboard Programme with Chris Curry, and I led the team that developed the data standards. So, you know, what is it that pension providers have got to return for display on on front-end dashboards? And we had a big debate with industry through the summer of 2020 during lockdown about, you know, is it pot, is it income, and what's the relevant priority to be given to those? Turns out, from a consumer perspective... When they think of the word pension, many consumers think the word pension is a recurrent income when they're older. 
lots and lots, and I think there's some Hargreaves Lansdowne research. I think you've had Nathan Long on here, haven't you, Tom? Mm. I think I think it's not public domain, but I think he said I can share this. I think somewhere between you know a third, maybe even up towards nearly a half of people don't know that a defined contribution pension is an invested fund of money. They don't really have a conception about what it is, if that makes sense. And this is what I mean about... It's worrying, isn't it? Yes, well, <laughs> yes, it, it, it is. And there's there's even a report from the Pension Insurance Corporation last week to say, is DC pension even the right word? Because that's mixing two concepts that, that people you know don't really get. So currently, as the data standards and the, importantly, the design standards, which mandate how every dashboard must look, they lead on income, which as you absolutely rightly say, Tom, is for defined contribution, an estimate based on assumptions. The one thing we probably know is whatever number is shown isn't going to be accurate. It's a it's a ballpark. So what government has done here, it's absolutely recognised what you just articulated in terms of consistency. So the Financial Reporting Council, the FRC, has put out consultation on a new version of the projection basis. Is it the Actuarial Standard Te- Technical Memorandum 1, you know, the yep. statutory yep. money yep. purchase illustration, SMPI. So that was consulted on and that came into force from last month. So every scheme and provider doing projections on their annual statements and eventually for dashboards from now onwards um, has to do it on the consistent basis. So that's that's brought some consistency to all DC providers or whatever type, trust-based or contract-based. Irrespective um, of the underlying investments. Well, the projected growth rates will be standardised based on the volatility of the underlying investments. So yeah, every provider has had to do an analysis of what the underlying investments are, the default strategy or whatever, to come up with what the standardised growth rates should be. Okay. But importantly, I think maybe an even more important consistency is how that projected pot is then assumed to be converted into an income. And I I personally didn't quite agree with where FRC landed, but it's landed where it is, which is it's converted on a single life, non-increasing basis. Whereas that's going to appear next to, if, if someone's lucky enough to say have a deferred DB pension, like me, for example, I've got two deferred DB pensions, they obviously have got spouses' pensions attached mm-hmm. after my death, and they also increase in line with inflation or, or something and there's about. there's a behavioural so, anchoring risk associated to that as well. If you've told people their pension's going to produce £10,000 a year, but actually the prudent thing to do, the responsible thing to do, would be to take an inflation-linked joint life annuity or whatever income arrangement that's only actually going to give you £6,000 a year or £5,000 a year. Well, I'm reluctant to give up the £10,000 a year my brain has now come to expect. I think that's so key. One of the things that, just thinking of the countries in Norway and Denmark and Sweden all do, on the homepage, they show a retirement timeline. So they, they try and get over to the user straight away that retirement isn't a date it's a journey that could last 20 years in fact the swedish one even has life expectancy on that homepage. it has a little red triangle to say for someone of your gender and your age you can expect retirement to be i don't know 67 through to 87 or whatever the, whatever the relevant data is to get to show you the concept that this is an income that has to last over time and then a really exciting development sitting next to Michael Rash in Copenhagen. He said, oh, Richard, we're launching version seven this autumn, 23. And I said, Michael, you've been doing this 20 years. Yes, but it, it iterates. He said, this year, we're launching a version that shows people the impact of a non-increasing pension. So in real terms, it's going to show the income decreasing in real spending terms over to, over that timeline. Can you see how this is a show me thing? Not to, It's quite difficult to explain it, isn't it? No, it's nice. But, uh, but, but you see, they've got to that 
through years of iteration and understanding what consumers do or don't understand about the reducing spending power of a flat rate income. So that's a really good example of put something in front of people, see what they understand and assume, oh, is that 10,000 a year you mentioned, Tom? Is that going to keep pace with inflation? Well, no, it's not. And then help them understand that and then iterate iterate the user interface based on that understanding. Okay. And that question of functionality. Yes. Is that something we're going to see in the UK? And what did you see when you were on your European tour? So as I said, most people want to come on for two or three minutes and they want to go to the main overview page. On my blog, I've got I've said so many stats, I would have to say a massive thank you, Tom, just in brackets, to all of the teams. They said, Richard, have some more screenshots, have some more spreadsheets of usage. In one country, I've got a spreadsheet of which types of users stay on which page on the dashboards for how many seconds at what time of day. It's, it's huge, it's vast, so it's really wonderful. I've, I've had to moderate that and, and put you know a similar level of information on the blog. But on I think on Belgium and on Netherlands, I've shown that the most used page is the main overview page, but the next most used page is much, much lower. So this, this is the Bob diving into it. What's popular is modeling retirement age. The instinctive next thing isn't, oh, can I pay more? (laughs) Although that's not ruled out entirely. But the next thing is, well, what happens if I retire later or earlier? So in Denmark, for example, every provider doesn't just provide a projected income to, say, 67 or, or 65. They actually provide 11 projected incomes to say, if this individual was to retire at 60 or 61 or 62 and 63, and then what the dashboard does in Denmark, it adds those up at each of those different retirement ages. So there's a wonderful slider that you can move to the left and right from 60 through to 70, and you can see the bars on the income timeline increasing if you retire later. But that's achieved not through a dashboard, that's achieved by more, even more burden on the pension providers in having to send a whole suite of projected incomes at different ages. So we might choose to do that in the UK, but obviously that would be a lot more burden than the providers and just providing the single figure they're required to initially. Probably not version one then. (laughs) No. Okay, super good. So you've seen what good looks like or what different versions of good look like after experience abroad. We haven't even got to version one yet here in the UK. So what do you think the particular challenges are facing us now in the UK to at least get to the starting line of delivery of version one? I can't say his name correctly, so apologies. Tron Torstad, who's the chief executive of the Norwegian dashboard, said, Richard, and they all echoed this. He said, Richard, three Cs, coverage, common ID, and collaboration. And if I just talk about those in the context of the hourglass, we've already talked about coverage, which is when have you got enough pensions digitally searchable that it's going to be a useful consumer experience at the front end? Accepting the Netherlands, no other country mandated the supply. So in in Denmark, three providers got together and got the ecosystem working on a voluntary basis. And then more and more pension providers eventually came to the party and and, and connected. And that's what the ABI was trying to do back around 2016-17, wasn't it? Spot on. This comes full circle right to the top of the call, doesn't it? But there was a key report from the ABI prototype project that said, the scale of the UK pension industry means that for organisations to make the business case to do the investment to connect their data means that they have to be mandated by law. So I don't think in the UK, and this is where the country differences are important, I don't think in the UK we'd have ever got this working on a voluntarist basis because we we need the law 
for organizations to make the business case, to make the data available. So coverage is important. So I would say in UK, we've got a big tick. So one of the reasons government did this when they did that feasibility study I mentioned in 2018, they did look at the other countries and it took a long time. It took Sweden and Denmark, you know, sort of 10 to 15 years for to get to the level of coverage they've now got through a voluntarist regime. So we're going to get to near universal coverage over a two to three year window from, you know, 24 to 2024 to 2026. So I think for us, we've got a big green tick against the coverage C. The second C was common ID. Every country I visited has a really reliable national identification number. And Fred Olav said to me in Oslo, he said, Richard, the reason we've been able to do some good stuff in Norway, we've been relying on the NIN, you know, their national identification number. Now, in the UK, we have national insurance number, but that isn't not reliable. reliable in, is it? Not reliable enough for pension providers to use that alone. So another of my hats, I, I joined the working group on dashboards at the pensions admin body, PASA, in 2017, that was also set up alongside the prototype, and I'm, I'm still on that now. PASA has done a lot of work and has authored guidance to say, well, what might a good matching basis be? Because every pension scheme has to decide how they are going to try and find Richard's pensions. So a core going in assumption is national insurance number, last name and date of birth. But there are problems there particularly maybe maybe more for female users who may more often have changed their surname but not updated their surname with their pension providers. So another thing I did, I did, I did a, a piece of large-scale matching research with one of the data providers, Equisoft ITM, with their Pension Fusion data connection service. This is at the bottom of the hourglass. And we looked at a quarter of a million records and we found that on national insurance number, last name, date of birth, you'll probably find nine out of 10 pensions. But then you need to be more sophisticated to do things like, well, let's match on first name or maybe per postcode and incrementally nudge that 90% up to a 99% match rate. So this isn't getting a lot of debate, but in, unless a dashboard can actually find pensions, then it's not going to be that much use. So one, you've got to have the pensions available to be found, coverage. Then you've got to have a common ID or a matching mechanism that's going to allow them to be found. And then the third C is sort of to the front end as well, is collaboration. What they all said is you need a humbly trusting collaborative relationship between all parties from front end dashboards through to the central technology, through to the back end data provision to get it working. And this is, I think, where I'm hopeful that from the ministerial reset in the spring and summer of this year, you know, all the announcements are, are, are littered with the word collaboration. And I think, to be honest, Tom, this initiative brings the pensions industry together right across from left to right, you know, from, from the local government pension scheme through to SIP providers and master trust and everything else in between, in a way, bringing it together that's probably never happened before. And the reason for that in my mind is the consumer doesn't care what they've got. The consumer has got all sorts. I've curated my career on being a good case study. I've got, you know, an LGPS pension. I've got a deferred DB. I've got some master trust and I've got some personal pension. Not because I designed it that way. It's just that's what my employers put me into. <laughs> Are you with me? But the, the consumers don't generally care about that. They just want to see what's their total income across all of that together with state pension as well. So it's a really, really collaborative project. And I think that is the biggest hill to, for us to climb in the UK. OK, so in the meantime, we had the Mansion House speech back in July, which was in pensions world was actually moderately exciting, given the number of DWP consultation papers that came out off the back of it. Including, was it 10? I think it was 10, wasn't it? There was certainly a lot to get our teeth into. And not yeah. least this question of the consolidation and the default consolidators and 
throwaway lines about pop for life. But so this dashboard project has to synchronise with a government agenda, which is probably slightly behind this, but nevertheless now is a thing and does exist, of trying to consolidate pension providers down into fewer, bigger, better run pension schemes. How's that going to go? The devil is in the detail on this, but without going too far, and some of that commentary talked about small pots into default consolidator reusing or potentially reusing, reusing some of the elements of the dashboard's ecosystem. But a really important point to understand, and I don't think, again, this is getting much media coverage, and I think podcasts like this, Tom, are so good at helping get this awareness out. There is no central register of pensions in the dashboard's ecosystem. As I've tried to articulate, Richard logs in at the top of the hourglass. His personal identity attributes get validated by the central part of the hourglass. And then his my personal details get passed to every pension provider at the bottom who then do a match to see have they got a pension for Richard. There's no central repository or central register. So when DWP in that consultation on small pots and default consolidators talks about reusing elements and a, and a central registry, that is not something that exists currently in the dashboard's ecosystem as being prescribed. What I would say, though, is three of the other countries I visited do have that central repository, not of pensions, but they just do hold a core, like, stub database to say, Richard, you've got pensions with, let's make them up, Nest, Aviva, and Scottish Widows. So you don't have to go and do this sort of scattergun find request. Do you know what I mean? Passing my details to everybody. You can just go to the three places that you know I've got a pension for. And am I right in saying that one of the concerns around the central repository concept was data security? Is that fair? Yes, I think think that's absolutely right. That can be mitigated if it's not a repository of pension data, because obviously what the scammers are interested in is that, you know, almost the bobs who've got the biggest pensions. Do you know what I mean? But if, if it's just literally a secure repository of... IDs or encrypted IDs and then encrypted pointers to where that individual's pensions are. I think that could be done quite securely. But to be really clear, that is not the technological architecture which is being brought forward for dashboards. Now, whether we might move to that in time, you remember I said one of the core successes or core challenges is, is this common ID, the matching one thing we have to do is work out whether matching is going to work at scale. You know, I've, I've heard some trustees saying, well, we're just going to match on national insurance number, last name and date of birth. And if we don't find a pension, we don't find a pension. And I might say to that, well, suppose one of your female defers changed their surname 30 years ago, but they never told you. Are you happy to not return her pension to be shown on her dashboard? So I think there's a lot of testing of the matching regime to be done. And it who knows, over time, we might find that a version 2 dashboard ecosystem needs to move more to the, the Dutch and Danish and Norwegian model that I saw, which is a, a core repository. Okay, we'll see where we get to it's quite, I said I said it was involved. <laughs> Sorry, Tom. You see, it's quite, bo- it's quite dull, isn't it, really? It's no, quite involved. I I, I'm interested, <laughs> even, if, yeah, I hope, even if it's just the two of us. So, um, I, I want to come back on something else that you sort of, alluded to yes. indirectly, which was around the educative dimension of the dashboards yes. and the, you know, yes. the the ability of people to, to play with it and model stuff. So I'm interested in how this fits in with maps and the general financial literacy agenda and the general agenda to get people to a point where they're better equipped to make good decisions with their money. How, how do you see that playing through? This is really exciting. And this comes to the actually the part of the hourglass that we haven't talked much about. The very top of the hourglass is dashboards. So let's always include an S on that now. And I think it's really helpful when the media talk about the dashboard. So 
at the far left of that top of the hourglass is is the government dashboard. That's from the Money and Pension Service. That's the Money Helper dashboard, which is the government public service dashboard. And a lot of trustees in pension schemes that I talk to haven't really understood that that isn't the only one. You know, I, I say to them, for example, oh, you do know that your deferred member is going to be able to see pensions in your scheme on the Lloyds Banking app, don't you? Oh, no, I didn't know that. So we have to think about the money helper dashboard, but then there are going to be any number of commercial dashboards. So I think the question you asked depends on whether you're talking about the government's dashboard and from maps or commercial. And one of the very exciting things, I'm here as an independent today, Tom, but you know, I'm not here particularly to promote anybody, but one of the exciting things I mentioned I'm working with Money Hub. They've just in September been lucky enough in Standard Life announced that yeah, Standard that Life want to do a commercial dashboard because they've realised they have to show their customers all of their pensions to enable them to make the good decisions that you're talking about. But of course, it's very hard to do a dashboard, so they don't want to build their own, so they're going to use Money Hub's solution. And, and, and having been around this, I think it's fair to say that expect more major pension providers and even banks maybe to announce that they're going to be doing commercial dashboards. So to come to the education point, Money Helper, the government, they've announced they are going to do a retirement hub of useful content surrounding the Money Helper dashboard. And this has been the Swedish experience too. What what they found when they started to segment their user base, once they've been going, they've been going some years, almost sort of eight, nine, 10 years, they started to say, well, let's have a look and see, are we really servicing the varied needs of our different types of user. They found users wanted a lot more content. So mid-career people, for example, 40-year-olds, they're not just saying, well, what pension income might I get? They're saying, asking questions like, I've just come back from parental leave. What do I need to do? Or do I need to do anything? So there's a lot of useful content that isn't particularly around, you know, managing your pension income that, that is going to be very, very useful. So there's definitely going to be a retirement hub. But I think I'd come back to the Norway statistic and saying, well, how many people know about Money Helper and Maps even? How many people would come to the Maps dashboard? I don't know. I think what you will see with the commercial dashboards coming to the to the right-hand side of the top of the hourglass, you will see a lot of those commercial providers saying, we can now help you see your total position. And they will then, I think, bring forward a lot of innovation to help their customers see that in the context of their overall financial position and also their financial well-being. And just something to add to that, if, like Standard Life are, are going to do, they use a platform that is also open banking enabled mm. that can connect your, say, your current account, then you can do really personalised targeting to say, well, I can see that the dashboard is saying I'm going to get, I don't know, let's say £2,000 a month roughly as a retirement income when I'm 67 in the 2040s. Well, what do I spend today? Well, I've connected my bank account and I can see today I spend £2,500 a month. Okay, so that gets a real, it's not only linking to, say, the retirement living standards, which are generic targets, but can actually link to... And then it gets even better because you've also linked your mortgage to this app and we can see that the term of that expires in, in 2040, but you're going to retire in the 2050s. We're assuming you won't have housing costs. So you can really get very personalised when you start to connect all of an individual's finances through open banking functionality alongside a pensions dashboard. So exciting, yeah. It is. I'm I'm very, very excited. And to be honest, Tom, I would say I have been humbled at Money Hub as, as a consumer-oriented fintech that sort of lives or dies by doing the right thing by consumers. And doing this testing I mentioned with real participants, I would say to anyone in the pensions industry, 
come and witness that testing because it's humbling how far our industry has left most consumers behind. You know, the lack of awareness of what they've got. And even in half an hour testing session, the way we do it, we show them the, the, the prototype and then they navigate through it and we watch what they're doing and we ask them to read it and then play back in their own words what they've understood. And that way we can iterate every single word we use on the dashboard matters and the placement and the, and the way buttons are positioned. It's so intricate, the user interface design. It's a new world for me. I just say I'm, I'm a pensions nerd. But at the end of a half hour or 45 minute testing session of these of these dashboards, I'm almost in tears. And sometimes the participants are as well. There's, there's, there's an intake of, oh, this is going to be so good. I so need this. I so need to see easily on my phone, on a banking app, you know, what I've got for retirement because there's so much fear. There are millions of people in this country who are detached and complacent and, and fearful about their retirement. And for me, the motivation, the personal motivation is to help millions of people reduce that fear and maybe over time, learn a bit more and become confident to do some things like maybe increase contributions. But I don't think we should particularly expect dashboards to suddenly make people increase contributions dramatically. Therefore, I think it's entirely consistent that with a PLSA hat on, you know, PLSA's main policy push is adequacy. Let's get 8% minimum contributions up to 12 through the, by the 2030s. I think it's entirely consistent to do dashboards alongside that not particularly expecting people to be, what's the opposite of inert, active, not particularly expecting them to increase contributions, but to see the inadequacy of 8% contributions in terms of what that will give them as a as a retirement income. Quick story on that in Australia, which I didn't go to, that's maybe next year, who knows. The Australian tax office has had a dashboard for years. And, you know, the superannuation minimum is nudging up to 12%. It's 11.5% next July, then 12% July 2025. There's strong consumer support for that. Why? Because for years, consumers have seen their inadequate incomes. So we know we've got a problem coming with minimum contributions not being enough and nowhere near enough contributions are going into DC pensions. One response to that would be, oh, don't tell people. Don't tell. My response would be, no, show them. <laughs> show them on their banking apps, on pensions dashboards, and then at the same time, increase the minimum contributions. Yeah, because critical if you're going to show them that they've got a problem, that you're also showing them where the solution lies. Otherwise, you're just going to dis- yes. depress them and, and drive them away. So yes. you, you've got to do it in a positive framing. So just coming back on your earlier comments, you've mentioned my my colleague Nathan, my days at Hargreaves Lansdowne, you know, I would be astonished if providers like Hargreaves Lansdowne don't launch their own dashboards. You know, why would you not do this? And the example you used is standard of uh, of Scottish widows and standard life. You talked about Robert Cochran at widows and and what's what's standard life doing uh, and with Money Hub. You know, this this is all just a no-brainer. You know, I think commercially, if providers, anyone interested in having a relationship with the end customer, if you don't do this, you're going to get left behind. So the Dutch stat I think I mentioned earlier is nearly half of all Dutch, you know, I said it's 40% generally, but nearly half of all Dutch use mainpensionoversicht.nl, which is the Dutch dashboard, at least once a year. But only a quarter of Dutch look at scheme-specific statements or, or websites. So I would I would be even more bullish, Tom, and say, if you don't do a dashboard, why do you think your customers are ever coming back to your website? So, and a personal observation, thinking back to the work I did around the money and pension service and thinking about pension-wise, everything you said to me here just reinforces one of the conclusions I came to, which is we know that people find pension-wise useful. And yep. where people go for pension-wise appointments, they come away saying that was a really helpful and positive experience. But not enough people are using it. 
and, and, and everything you said here reinforces my conclusion that what you need to do is to take that service to the customer. You need to reverse things like pension-wise into the place where the customers are going to consume the information, which is at the front end where the providers are, rather than the providers trying to send the customer away to pension-wise because you lose too many of them in the process. Spot on, Tom. And I think the other thing is you make it personal. So when I was on the program doing the data standards, obviously that was part of MAPS, and I talked with colleagues about the MAPS and the pension-wise service. You know, and, and the classic story is the individual turns up with their carrier bag, their Tesco carrier bag of all their paperwork from the last 30 years. So for me, what Dashboards does, it simply presents what you've got in terms of your pension build-up so far and estimated retirement income on your phone and you'll trip over it on your banking app. Oh, it's a new service, great. Then as part of that, there's someone really helpful you can talk to about this and they're called pension-wise and it's free and impartial. Click here to make an appointment. So then what you've done, you've overcome the fear barrier of I don't understand what's in the carrier bag. Does that make sense? Yeah, so yeah. then you can have a much more efficient, personalised conversation with your PensionWise guider because you can see, or even they can see, through delegated access, one thing I haven't mentioned, there's going to be a facility to say, I can see all my pensions. Now I want to, through a trusted delegated access route, also enable temporarily my PensionWise guider to also see what I've got. So that very rapidly, PensionWise guider can have a personalised conversation with you which I think would just be just be fantastic. And presumably that could also extend to going in a slightly different direction to your financial advisor as well. Oh yes, that's as long as they are FCA regulated because that, that's the other other community for whom delegated access will be made possible, yes. Fantastic. Okay, look, I'm conscious we've been talking for nearly an hour now, so we should probably wrap this up at this point. Look, Richard, thank you so much for all of that. I, I hope we can revisit this subject as we go through into next year and things start to hit the ground and the wheels start turning. I've got one last question, which has just been in my mind as we've been talking here. How did your daughter get on with her marathon? Oh, it was her first one. Thanks for the question. Um, she did it in um, just over five hours. So a friend who ran with her did it in under four hours. So that was that Pretty was really um, yeah, yeah. marvellous. Yeah. And, and lots of people. I was amazed. I think 6,000, I think, ran the, the marathon in this very, very far north of Norway, but really weird that it's like 2 a.m. They started at about 10 p.m. Because the, in the month of June, the sun never sets right in the Arctic Circle. So uh, it's, a, it's a funny old time. So then I slept on the, on the sleeper train all the way back down Norway. Pretty <laughs> unforgettable was, experience, though. Right? Oh, oh, such a privilege. It was such a joy. Almost, you know, like, you know, time of my life, really. It was, it was wonderful. Great opportunity to do that. Well, Richard, it's been a privilege to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Tom. So there we go. I came away a lot more optimistic about dashboards and how they can impact pension provision in the UK. As ever, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, then do please like, subscribe and leave a positive review. And if you have any questions or comments, do get in touch.